I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Bringing you news items from our three major storylines, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. And sometimes, like today, for instance, we talk politics. We'll start with important headlines from the world of science and technology. Then we'll move on to the news items. First, China Warong, a state-owned financial company whose former chairman was recently executed for alleged corruption, may default on over $23 billion of foreign debt. That would be a first for a Chinese state-owned enterprise and its spooking investors. Then we look at the latest in counter-drone warfare, a new weapon that emits a microwave beam to take down even advanced military models. And third, is the GOP breaking up with corporate America over woke capitalism? Maybe. (laughs) Then, after the break, I interview Maggie Haberman of the New York Times to find out what Trump is up to these days and what the future of the Republican Party looks like with Trump out of power. Okay, let's start with those science and tech headlines. First, a new World Health Organization report warns that antibiotic medicines under development today are ineffective against drug-resistant bacteria. Of the 43 drugs in the pipeline, none could stave off the bugs identified by the WHO. The Financial Times reports that bacteria causing pneumonia or sepsis are growing more resistant to existing treatments. More generally, one peer-reviewed study estimates that antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, could cause 10 million deaths a year starting in 2050, a silent pandemic, as some experts call it. John, here on the podcast, we often talk about the arms race between COVID-19 vaccines and virus variants. This is a whole other track for a similar race, right? Yes, it is. Uh, The scientific community has been concerned, to say the least, about drug-resistant bacteria. The WHO report sort of puts an exclamation point on that. The problem is that for the major pharma companies to invest in it, there's no real rate of return, if you will. So I guess the WHO is hoping that governments will step up and pour money into uh, figuring out how to deal with this. I hope so, because the uh, effects of underinvestment often are brought very sharply into focus in a moment of crisis, as we've learned with COVID. Indeed. Next, Alina Chan was early to the idea that the coronavirus behind COVID-19 could have escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan. Let's not rule it out. Chan, a postdoc fellow at the Broad Institute, argued in a paper last May. That theory has since gained some credibility. And in a conversation with Slate, Chan lays out a few worrying pieces of evidence. The genetic family that the novel virus emerged from only exists in bats far to the south of Wuhan, home to the virus's outbreak and the lab in question. She also highlights how U.S. embassy officials visited the Wuhan lab years ago and warned even then of lax safety measures. John, what did you get from this conversation? I'm sort of a half-believer, maybe even a three-quarter believer in the lab leak theory. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked to Chris Isham earlier this week about right. it. You know, back in March, April, and May, if you said it was a lab leak, you were seen as a lunatic conspiracy theorist. Yep. And that is no longer the case. Indeed. Let's get to the news items. First, in our financialization of everything storyline, China Huarong may be majority-owned by the Chinese Ministry of Finance, but all three major credit agencies are considering a potential downgrade of the country's biggest distressed asset manager. China Huarong has seen its offshore bonds fall to record lows, and there are reports it may default on its loans or even go bankrupt. Huarong was set up as the bad bank 
to take on all of the distressed debt uh, mm -hmm. that followed the Asian collapse in the late 90s and sort of marched along uneventfully until Mr. Lee, is that his name? Lee Xiaomin. Lee Xiaomin, yes, took over in 2012 and sort of went on a bender, you know, acquiring interest in all sorts of different companies, real estate and investment mm -hmm. banking and so on and so forth. Yeah. And now the company that was supposed to be the the safe harbor for bad debt has now become a, a threat to financial stability right. uh, in various Asian markets. I mean, yields are higher on Chinese investment grade and high yield corporate bonds right now and have been moving higher since that report. So there's clearly a level of concern in the investment community that one or more major Chinese entities could be in trouble. Nikkei Asian Reviews reporting has found that state-owned entities in China either failed to repay or missed interest rate payments on $15.9 billion in local bonds in 2020. I don't know, is this the first of a, a row of dominoes to fall? I mean, uh, these sorts of events can, can snowball very quickly. Out, right? Yeah, Rebecca, what do you think will happen if the CCP lets a state-owned enterprise default? I don't think they're going to let that happen. I mean, I would, I, you know, and this is my sort of piggybacking on the expertise of China experts who don't believe it's going to happen. But the thing about China Huarong is that because it is – majority owned by the Chinese Ministry of Finance, its debt has been evaluated as semi-sovereign. This is according to reporting from the Nikkei Asian Review. I think you included a link to that article in today's news items that was very succinct and informative. Um, the idea that it had this lurking risk is a little surprising because it was regarded as sort of a semi-sovereign issuer of debt. You know, acknowledged China experts in the field. There's a woman at Netixis who's very good, says that she thinks it's it's going to probably come under new management and there will be a recapitalization of the fund that will dilute shareholders. But, you know, when you talk too big to fail, uh, that certainly is. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Yes. This next item falls into our world in disarray storyline. New Scientist reports on a weapon that can strike down groups of drones. Weapons that foil consumer drones already exist, but military drones are often equipped with protection like jam-resistant radios. Leonidas, a device that can fit on the back of a pickup truck, fires a high-power microwave beam to overload even an advanced military drone's electronics. In a recent demonstration, Leonidas brought down all 66 of its targets. John, is this the next wave in military technology? The microwave. Drones really have transformed warfare in the theaters, whether it be at sea or on land. And if you look at, say, a U.S. aircraft carrier out in the middle of the ocean, and suddenly there are 50 drones that are closing in on it, at the moment, there's not much that aircraft carrier can do. And if it could do something, the size of the weapon would be such that it would be difficult to hit all 60 drones. Mm -hmm. This weapon is small, relatively speaking, the back mm -hmm. of a pickup truck, and is apparently effective in knocking drones out of the sky. That makes the U.S. Navy more secure and this company is going to have one huge customer in the Department of Defense, that's for sure. You know, and another huge customer, I think Saudi Aramco, I thought they could yes. probably use that to defend yeah. their oil infrastructure. I think they probably have got some kind of counter, counter drone technology deployed over there. Yes, 
you know, non-state actors have access to drones. Mm -hmm. And so our threat to, let's say, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, right? Mm -hmm. um, if this weapon is deployed, then those places are going to be more secure. So this company has got a bright future. Absolutely. Now, from our electoral politics basket, Thomas Edsel has a new column in the New York Times analyzing how woke capitalism is affecting both parties. In recent years, some corporations have taken increasingly vocal stances on politically fraught issues. And now the Republican backlash to the corporate backlash against a restrictive voting law in Georgia has both parties in a somewhat unusual position. Big business is siding with Democrats. Republicans are railing against corporate interests, and that presents risks and opportunities for both parties. John, which party stands to benefit the most from this role reversal vis-a-vis -vis corporate power? I think both parties think that they gain the most. I'm not quite sure if that's true. Mm -hmm. Companies, they're not stupid, right? I mean, the president is a Democrat. Both houses of Congress are controlled by Democrats. So getting on the Democratic side of an issue is, you know, kind of a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. They also want to have it both ways, right? So corporations have depended upon Mitch McConnell, when he was majority leader, to protect their interests in Congress. He was their guy in the United States Congress, mm -hmm. and he kept things from happening that they didn't want to happen. Yeah. McConnell conversely, is dependent upon them for campaign contributions. And the question is, can uh, having it both ways stand up? Uh, Republican activists, Fox News, Republican office holders, they found that the campaigning against woke capitalism is a really good issue. Mm -hmm. It resonates with their constituency. Woke capitalism, I don't it, it's, a it's a contradiction in terms. It seems like a contradiction in terms, right? It I is mean. a contradiction in terms, but it, uh -huh. it's a good positioning for populist, nationalist rebranding, if you will, of the mm -hmm. Republican Party. And it's a hot issue. I'm curious to know how this is going to work out for the Democratic Party, because my sense is that my concern is that a very progressive wing of the Democratic Party is ultimately, inevitably, going to demand a level of accountability from corporate America that they have no intention of delivering on. And then what's going to happen? You know, the corporate interests are aligned with the Republicans is a gross oversimplification, right? Mm -hmm. If you were to go to the tech world, they are, you know, libertarian or democratic. They're certainly mm -hmm. socially liberal. Yeah. Same is true at the investment banks in New York. Same is true at all the major law firms in New York and around the country. So it's not that corporate America 100% aligns with the Republican Party. You know, the Democrats have raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from the tech community alone. Mm -hmm. uh, the entertainment community obviously has been a huge supporter of the Democrats over the years. So it's yeah. not cut and dry. On the other yeah. hand, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell delivering on the corporate tax cut was, in fact, supported yeah. pretty much by every last corporation in America for obvious yeah. reasons. But the whole woke movement, if you will, which sort of bubbled up in academia first and has since sort of spread to the point where people feel uncomfortable about saying things that 10 years ago uh, wouldn't even be 
at all controversial, that is a huge issue, particularly within the Republican base. And they think correctly that it's a majority issue. And so they're going to hammer it again and again and again and again because they think it gains them votes. And they're right about that. Well, it's going to be interesting to see this how this shift pans out. It will be. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the furthest thing from a nationalist and a populist that one can imagine. Yeah. And at the moment, he is the highest ranking Republican office holder in the land. Uh-huh. He jumped on the woke capitalism thing and, you know, threatened Coca-Cola or whatever, or pretend to threaten Coca-Cola. But, you know, he does not represent the new base of the Republican Party. And mm-hmm. he's trying to cover his right flank, but yeah. I'm not sure that's going to work. Issue to watch, that's for sure. Yes, it is. <laughs> It'll be fun to watch McConnell because he truly is straddling the fence as the fence goes further and further apart. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But after that, we've got more politics. Uh, An interview with New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman. She was arguably the best sourced political reporter during the Trump administration. And now she's hard at work on a book about the past four years. John, what were you most interested in discussing with Maggie? Maggie probably knows Trump as well as any reporter in the country, if not the world. And she's covered him not just, you know, in the 2016 campaign and then the first administration, she's covered him going back to when she was at the New York Post. So she knows him very well. And having her talk about Trump and the future of the Republican Party and Trump's role in that is just almost by itself interesting. Let's go to the break and we'll be right back with that interview. Welcome to the News Items interview. We have as our guest today, Maggie Haberman, the former White House correspondent for the New York Times. She's currently on book leave to tell us in long form what happened during those dramatic four years. She has been in the past a correspondent reporter for Politico and for the New York Post, among others. We're thrilled to have her on the podcast today. Maggie, thank you very much for joining us. John, thanks for having me. So tell us about the book. Uh, the, the book is in process, scheduled to be out sometime next year. It's not just the White House. It's years before that as well. There are many books coming out on this topic, as you know, in the next year and a half. Um, I am the only reporter who covered him before he was a candidate. And so I'm taking the arc a little bit longer than, than just the White House without revealing too much. What is he up to these days? I think he's still watching himself on television, John. Um, <laughs> he's playing a lot of golf. He's holding meetings at Mar-a-Lago. He has set himself up as this sort of, you know, uh, or attempting to be a party leader in exile. He has had a bunch of people come to Mar-a-Lago and hold fundraisers at his property, which bring him money. Uh, and they kiss the ring for an endorsement. And he is telling people he is serious about running in 2024. Now, many of his advisors don't believe he ultimately will do that. But, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. That was also many people's attitudes, mine included, in 2015 uh, before he ran. My default setting was that he wouldn't. You know, I think a reason he wouldn't is that the arrow of time marches forward, not backwards. And he will be four years older and so forth. He's not young. But at the moment, he's talking very seriously about it. Let's get into a little bit of Trump's public statements 
since leaving office. Stop the Steal got us to the Capitol riot on January 6th, but he hasn't given up on Stop the Steal. He keeps bringing it up in speeches and appearances and stuff. Is that on purpose or is that just part of the the show, if you will? I think it's certainly on purpose. I mean, in the sense that he is, it's not like he's saying this accidentally. He sees a benefit in it. He sees his supporters responding to it. But frankly, I don't think anybody could get him to stop even if they wanted to. What's more interesting to me is not that he continues to say the election was rigged, which I always assumed he was going to continue saying, you know, well, after it was over. But what is interesting to me is that he has started trying to rewrite the history of January 6th. He did an interview, I think, with Laura Ingram on Fox, where he talked about how, you know, there was really nothing bad going on that day. And that to me is is quite stunning. And I say that because I think to the degree that the events of January 6th get memory hold, I think that is ultimately Donald Trump's goal, where he can try to retain his grip on the Republican Party, because for a group of Republicans, by no means the majority, but a group of Republican lawmakers, the events of January 6th was a breaking point. But Trump is doing what he can to get attention, and that involves saying a number of increasingly outlandish things. So one of the things that never really existed from my point of view, other than as transactional, was Trump's relationship with the former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. That's completely come undone. He's trashed McConnell in two speeches that I'm aware of. What's Trump's play on that? Why trash Mitch McConnell? Well, that that really is just is out of anger. I mean, there's no play other than vengeance. He continues to blame McConnell for the fact that McConnell said on December 14th that Joe Biden is the president-elect. And And in Trump's mind, that's not acceptable. So I think you're going to continue seeing that. And it's not just that recognition of Biden. It was that after Trump's second acquittal in an impeachment trial, McConnell very forcefully condemned him. Despite the fact that McConnell voted to acquit, McConnell then went and gave a speech suggesting that, you know, what Trump had done had clearly led to the events of that day. Uh, Trump did not take that well. And so uh, I think that's a big part of why you're seeing him attack. There's sort of a vast array of financial interests, let's put it that way, that Mm. are, I wouldn't say desperate, but more than hopeful that the Republicans regain control of the U.S. Senate. You know, McConnell is their guy Mm -hmm. for sort of overseeing that, making sure that candidates that are acceptable to general electorates in all these states are chosen and and so on and so forth. Let's take John Thune as an example, right? He's in, in the Senate leadership on the Republican side. He's up for re-election in 2022. Mm-hmm. Trump has threatened to you know, endorse a primary opponent. Is that something that can be worked out? Is it mediated? Or is Trump just going to do what he wants to do and Republican Party swells be damned? At the moment, it's not mediated. I think it could get to the point where it is. Certainly, we saw In the early part of of this year, when Trump was first out of office, Kevin McCarthy, who had privately been, you know, considering a motion to censure Trump after January 6th, and who very famously had a a brutal and and raw phone call with Trump while the riot was going on, begging for help. Um, Trump met with McCarthy. McCarthy, we know, wants to be Speaker. McCarthy, I think, was trying to stress to Trump the importance of attacking Democrats and not Republicans. Uh, There is no one who can hold that kind of mediation now, with the exception of Lindsey Graham, who has tried a bunch of times. Graham has gone down and played golf with Trump repeatedly and has tried to stress to him the things that he can do 
to help the NRSC, which has a bunch of asks or had a bunch of asks, at least in terms of fundraising and so forth. I think that if Trump starts to see that he is having trouble attracting a strong candidate for any of these races, just put Thune aside for a second, any of these races, he will glom on to whatever he can to claim victory. And I think he will slide back toward being kinder to the Republican leadership in the Senate. But for now, that's not going to happen. So the play is that where he thinks he can win with the challenger, he will do so. Correct. But if he thinks that the challenger probably can't beat, let's say, John Thune, mm-hmm. then he'll say, I kept the challenger out of the race, and that's why Thune got elected. You got it. <laughs> so let's get to one of the oddest things I thought about, about <laughs> uh, the Trump political career or whatever we want to call it, and that is his relationship with the evangelical community. Mm. Mike Pence is probably the political candidate at this moment who has the strongest sort of resume for the evangelical base Mm -hmm. within the Republican Party. Trump has been, quote, disappointed, end quote, with Pence. What is the relationship with Pence at this moment? So they've had conversations, Pence and Trump, over the last couple of months, and it's been cordial, according to a bunch of people I have spoken with. But Trump remains angry at Pence for not doing something that Pence was quite clear with Trump he did not have the authority to do, which was send the... Overturn the election. Right, overturn the election. (laughs) And Trump has said to people since then, you know, I didn't ask him to overturn it. I asked him to send it back to the states. Well, actually, he did ask him to overturn it. So there's that. I think the fact that Pence has a book deal, I imagine, is is not sitting well with former President Trump, which I think might be part of why he attacked Pence on Saturday. Really? Why? Well, I mean, Trump would like people to believe that everyone is chasing him for a deal. I don't think that's true. So there's that. But I don't think that it's you know, outright hostile. I do think that it's, you know, a strained calm, I guess is how I would put it. Is Pence, in fact, planning to run in 2024, or is it just an exploratory situation, as we say, exploratory? (laughs) Uh, At the moment, I think that he is planning to run, but I certainly think that could change. It's not really clear to me that he would run if, um, if Trump ran. I thought a large part of the appeal of Trump, uh, if we call it that, was He spoke the language, um, not the political rhetoric of income inequality, but of social inequality, that certain people thought they were better than you. And the thing that I always thought was Trump's sort of signature and most clever device was when he would come to the rallies and he would come onto the stage and applaud the audience. Has he still got that feel for the politics of grievance, for the politics of they think you're better than I am, or they think that you're they're better than you are? Has he developed that at all, or is it just the same move? No, I mean, John. If anything, I think that he is. I don't know how to describe it. I think he's. I think he was very good at that for a long time and seeing kind of the commercial appeal in it. And now I just think he is that. That's just how angry he is. That I don't think that it's. I don't think it's a well he's tapping into. I think he's bitter about having um, having lost. What had once upon a time become, I'm going to tap into your grievances, is now you have to have my grievances. And I, I don't know that that's going to play as well politically. So what do you think the prospects are for the Republicans going forward? Here they are with this weird situation where the person 
who is commands the greatest loyalty, particularly amongst Republican primary voters and caucus attenders, is you know not exactly, but threatening at every at every turn to defeat Republican incumbents that he doesn't like. How does this all work out? Does it just keep going the way it is, or is there some kind of um, fever that breaks it? I thought January six fever that breaks. You, yes, that's. I thought January six was going to be that fever. And it was not. Yeah. It was not. So um, so I think we don't know yet. I think 2022 will tell us a lot. But again, I think there is this kind of stuck in 2015 feeling, right, of like everyone is just wishing, not everyone, but a number of Republicans are, are waiting for someone else to take him on and someone else to be the person who gets rid of him. And that did not work in the first election in 2016. Um, it may work now just because he's not in office and he's on his way downhill you know, unless he actually does run again. If he runs again, at the moment, the polling indicates it's his nomination. So I think that's the big threat for the Republican Party. But I don't think they know where to go right now. I think it's it's very up in the air. I'm going to ask one last question, which is, after you write the book, are you going to go back to the Times? Mm-hmm. I mean, I assume you're going to go back to the Times. I but am. I mean, do you have an idea as to what you're going to cover in this? My new beat is is actually kind of similar to my old beat, except I'm not covering the White House specifically, but it's investig- it's investigations and politics. And I've been doing that for the last few months. So I think it'll I think it'll look like that. All right. Maggie, thank you so much for doing this interview today. It was my pleasure. By the way, is Trump agreeing to be interviewed for you? Uh, I'm not I wouldn't talk I'm not gonna talk about not that. Not gonna talk about it. But that. I appreciate you trying. All right, good. Thanks so much. <laughs> I'll talk to you. We look forward to reading the book. Okay. The world needs definitely needs more of Maggie Haberman's insights <laughs> and more of your insights for that matter. Subscribers can check out the news items newsletter where the material for this podcast comes from on Substack by Googling news items, Substack, John Ellis. Also, our listeners should also visit Investable Universe, which is Rebecca's terrific website about the global market of things. I love that tagline. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's it from us today. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back on Monday with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then.